You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. A content advisory before we begin. Today's episode includes racial language in its historical context. For 50-plus years, the only thing most people know about singer-actor Al Jolson is that he appeared in blackface in the first motion picture with embedded sound, The Jazz Singer. But he also promoted the work of black playwright Garland Anderson, leading to the first all-black Broadway show, as well as pushing to hire a black dance troupe at a time when black performers were outright banned from Broadway. Beloved country singer Johnny Cash was an impassioned spokesperson for prison reform, going so far as to appear before a Senate subcommittee to call for things like separating first-timers from hardened criminals and to focus on rehabilitation. But he also started a forest fire that burned over 500 acres and displaced or killed dozens of endangered condors. Spiky cacti sometimes contain life-sustaining water, and even the most beautiful roses have thorns. We're all some mix of good and bad. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Let me stress that we're not trying to vilify or redeem anyone on today's episode. They are what they are, and a part-time podcast isn't going to change that. And we're not getting into the debate of separating the art from the artist. This is only a half-hour show. So let's go back and forth through some examples of bad things done by good people and good things done by bad people. We'll start our list with the first president of these United States. George Washington was said to have been so humble and noble that he refused a salary. Instead, he had an expense account that he downright exploited. In a seven-month period, Washington spent $6,000 or the annual salaries of 75 army privates, on booze. He used his expense account to lend money to deadbeat friends who never paid him back, and to buy senselessly extravagant things, like a saddle for his horse that cost the equivalent of 10 privates' annual salaries. At Valley Forge, one-sixth of the critically undersupplied colonial army died, many of them from starvation. The food situation was so desperate that Washington sent troops as far away as New Jersey to forage, a polite way of saying, rob nearby farms. Meanwhile, on his birthday, Washington ate mutton and fowl and hired a band to play for his guests. Bizarrely, to raise morale for the starving, often shoeless troops, Washington used his expense account to put on a play. That one angered the Continental Congress to the point where they banned everyone in the entire army from ever attending any play on threat of court-martial. All told, Washington blew through over $4 million in modern money. 
In addition to being a brilliant general, Napoleon Bonaparte was a ruthless dictator. Not content only to conquer other countries, he had no qualms using force on French citizens, such as ordering cannons to be used on a group of protesters in 1795. At the same time, though, Napoleon governed the conquered territories under a system of laws based on equality. This Napoleonic code also forbade titles acquired at birth, which basically meant that your birth would no longer determine how good your life could be in the future. Napoleon also set in motion a system of secular public education reforms that would become the foundation for the modern educational system in much of Europe. He founded a number of state secondary schools to provide a standardized education open to everyone, teaching the sciences plus modern and classical languages. The system offered scholarships and outperformed its European counterparts. Ask any schoolchild who freed the slaves, and they'll tell you immediately, Abraham Lincoln. We hold him up as a champion of humanity and equality. His current reputation might surprise the audience of his famous debate with Senator Stephen Douglas, who heard Lincoln explain, I am not, nor have ever been, in favor of bringing about in any way the social and political equality of the white and black races. I am not, nor ever have been in favor of making voters or jurors of Negroes, nor of qualifying them to hold office, nor to intermarry with white people. And I will say in addition, that there is a physical difference between the white and black races which I believe will forever forbid the two races from living together on terms of social and political equality. And inasmuch as they cannot so live, while they do remain together, there must be a position of superior and inferior. And I, as much as any other man, am in favor of having the superior position assigned to the white race. Lincoln proposed relocating freed slaves to Liberia, Haiti, or Central America, almost anywhere that wasn't here. Lincoln's views may have started to change once he saw how bravely black troops fought for the Union cause, but even up until his death, he seemed willing to leave their fate in the hands of bigoted state legislators. Bonus fact, the Oregon Territory outlawed slavery before it even achieved statehood and promptly outlawed people of African descent in the territory on pain of repeated flogging, 20 to 40 lashes every six months until they left. Genghis Khan spread the Mongol Empire from China's Pacific coast to the doorstep of Europe, conquering or destroying both small tribes and large cities. If his riders appeared in the distance, it behooved you to surrender and pay tribute to the Khan. If you didn't, you would be eradicated. Genghis Khan's empire killed 10% of the world's population, including two-thirds of northern China. But if you did surrender, your life might actually improve. Not only would you be allowed to continue practicing your faith, Genghis Khan enforced religious equality. He also upheld gender equality, with women seated as prominent advisors. Scholars, doctors, and skilled tradesmen were not only saved, but encouraged to develop and teach their skills. Life could be so good under the Khan that certain tribes asked to join the Mongol Empire rather than waiting for the Mongols to eventually reach them. 
Mahatma Gandhi's peaceful protests against British rule of India have left an indelible mark on history. His name is synonymous with transcendent passivity. Gandhi was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize five times, the last time being in the year he was assassinated. Since the award is not given posthumously, the committee declared that there was no suitable living candidate. Gandhi held firm to his principles of nonviolent resistance, but not so much to his stance on celibacy. At the age of 38, he took a vow of brahmacharya, which meant literally living a spiritual life, but was normally used to refer to chastity. Embracing poverty was easy, chastity not as much. So he worked out a series of complex loopholes, which meant he could say he was technically chaste while still engaging in explicit sexual conversations and behavior. While he routinely told married couples to take a cold bath when they felt sexual urges, Gandhi carried on an affair with his personal physician for a number of years. After the death of his wife, Gandhi gathered more and more women around him, whom he coaxed to sleep naked in his bed, including two 18-year-old grandnieces. In case it needed to be said, such behavior was not part of the accepted practice of brahmacharya. The top name of organized crime in the first half of the 20th century, Al Capone, built a criminal domain that brought in $100 million a year. Crossing him was a fatal mistake, as seven men learned in a parking garage on Valentine's Day, 1929. Capone didn't keep all of the money for himself, though. In 1931, Capone opened one of the nation's first soup kitchens, which served 3,000 meals to the poor and homeless every day. Many claim the main impetus for the soup kitchen was PR, to clean up Capone's image, but he still fed men, women, and children who would otherwise go hungry. If you think Gandhi is the only seemingly sainted historical figure we're talking about today, you might want to pace yourself. Next up is an actual saint, Teresa of Calcutta, aka Mother Teresa. Through the Order of the Missionaries of Charity, the Catholic nun devoted her life to helping the sick and impoverished of the world. From a distance, she looked like the pinnacle of Christian love but saving souls may have been more important to her than saving lives. She repeatedly bragged about coercing people into deathbed conversions. She saw the struggle of those in poverty as admirable. She likened their suffering to Christ on the cross, and in the worst years condoned and even encouraged it within her hospitals and orphanages. Medical care there was administered by volunteers with no medical training. Needles were reused until they were blunt. Pain management was non-existent. The staff were not even able to distinguish the dying from the treatable. She told those in pain that they were being kissed by Jesus, yet on her own deathbed was happy to accept the very best medical care offered. I'm not even going into her stance on women's rights. And now if you'll pardon me, I'm about to receive an angry phone call from my old-school Catholic mother. All that being said, for those of us coming up in the 80s, when Mother Teresa and Princess Diana died within a few days of each other, it was a pretty rough week. 
Now, we all knew we weren't going to get through this episode without talking about Adolf Hitler, so let's see if we can do it quickly. Hitler had it in for many types of people, chief among them the children of Israel, but his list also included smokers. He ordered the first public anti-smoking campaign in modern history. Hitler also passed laws to stop medical experimentation on animals. Okay, that's good. We're done. You'd be disappointed to know just how many of your childhood heroes would have taken Hitler's side. In 1983, beloved children's author Roald Dahl suggested that Hitler, quote, didn't just pick on the Jews for no reason, adding that there is a trait in the Jewish character that does provoke animosity. Revolutionary industrialist Henry Ford was also grossly anti-Semitic. He bought the Dearborn Independent newspaper to use it as a platform for his unsavory views, and his insistence that the Jews started World War I was even cited by Hitler in Mein Kampf. In a 1971 Playboy interview, John Wayne said, I believe in white supremacy until the blacks are educated to a point of responsibility. I don't believe in giving authority and positions of leadership and judgment to irresponsible people. Fashion designer Coco Chanel was a Nazi collaborator during the occupation of France and helped fund anti-Semitic publications. Famed aviator Charles Lindbergh publicly claimed that the Jews were trying to drag America into the war through their ownership of the media. And Walt Disney supported a number of pro-Nazi organizations. Racist views spring up like mad when you look back into the lives of the authors you loved as children. Roald Dahl, Rudyard Kipling, and, I'm sorry to say, even Dr. Seuss. Joining me this week for a deeper dive are Carly and Katrina from the Dimly Lit Podcast. Hello all, I'm Carly. I'm Katrina. We're the co-hosts of Dimly Lit, the podcast where we read classic literature and try to figure out what the hell is going on. Long beloved by children and adults alike, most of us have fond memories of reading Green Eggs and Ham, Horton Hears a Who, Oh the Places You'll Go, and several other works by Dr. Seuss. I know I owned several of his books as a kid and basically had Green Eggs and Ham memorized. I used to read them to my kittens. Unfortunately, there's an entire trove of writing and illustrations completed by Dr. Seuss that isn't quite as pleasant to remember. Yep, turns out Dr. Seuss was a huge racist for a major chunk of his life. Goodness, find me an older author who wasn't, honestly. No kidding, they're all bad. Content warning ahead for racist language and discussions of racism. So Geisel was the chief editorial cartoonist for a newspaper in New York called PM for most of the 1940s. To put it mildly, the 40s were a rather eventful time in the United States, most notably because of our involvement in World War II. As many of you probably know, World War II was comprised of the Axis and the Allies. Basically, it was Italy, Germany, and Japan against a bunch of other countries, including the United States. Geisel was a big patriot and really latched onto the nationalism inspired by World War II. He clung to this a little too much, frankly, because it devolved into some atrociously racist writing and cartoons. He drew some editorial cartoons that featured dramatically caricatured Japanese individuals, complete with buck teeth and squinted eyes. One of these notable ads shows a Japanese caricature next to a drawing of Hitler with the text, What have you done today to help save your country from them? Unsurprisingly, Geisel was also an ardent supporter of one of the bleakest moments in American history, 
the internment of Japanese Americans. After Japanese military forces bombed U.S. naval base Pearl Harbor, much of the United States turned hostilities toward their Japanese American neighbors, accusing them of espionage based solely on their race. Shortly thereafter, the U.S. government forced all individuals of Japanese descent to leave their homes for imprisonment in internment camps. And Thomas Seuss Geisel, when challenged on his anti-Japanese viewpoints, had this to say. Right now, when the Japs are planting their hatchets in our skulls, it seems like a hell of a time for us to smile and warble brothers. It is a rather flabby battle cry. If we want to win, we've got to kill Japs, whether it depresses John Haynes Holmes or not. We can get palsy-walsy afterward with those that are left. Fortunately, there's some evidence that Dr. Seuss later came to regret his racism and the role his propaganda played in the internment of Japanese Americans. One biographer, Judith Morgan, reports that Geisel later regretted many of his cartoons, especially the super racist ones. In 1953, he took a trip to Japan and saw the devastation the U.S. had wrought on the citizens there. Many people believe that his book Horton Hears a Who was his attempt to amend his previous views, as it is almost universally interpreted as a parable about the American post-war occupation of Japan. The dedication for Horton Hears a Who reads, to my great friend Mitsugi Nakamura of Kyoto, Japan, which is a good sign. Although biographer Richard Manier points out that Horton Hears a Who has its own problems with tone deafness, but that's a subject for another time. For more information on problematic classic authors, as well as analysis of said problematic classic authors' works, please check out our podcast, Dimly Lit, on Apple, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Also coming soon, a crossover Dimly Lit episode with Moxie herself, host of the very podcast you're listening to right now. Catch us chatting about Yertle the Turtle, another Dr. Seuss book with strong political and historical implications. Thanks for letting us talk at your listeners, Moxie. Thanks, Katrina and Carly. Another world leader with a failing report card in all things humanitarian was Saddam Hussein. He committed genocide by ordering the deaths of thousands of men, women, and children in the Kurdish province. At the same time, he, like Napoleon, was a champion of education. During his rule, primary school enrollment was 100%, and he instituted a literacy program with the intent to see the entire population of Iraq could read. Likewise, Muammar Gaddafi dramatically improved Libya's literacy rates, even though his human rights violations were gruesome. One of the most famous Englishmen in history, of which there are many, Prime Minister Winston Churchill's leadership during World War II helped lead the Allies to victory. He was not as universally loved as he seems from across the distance of an ocean in several decades. Despite being a figure of British resilience, his Conservative Party failed to win the 1945 general election. And not even for the fact that the Prime Minister had deliberately diverted food away from India during the war to feed Europeans at a time when India desperately needed it worsening one of the greatest famines in the country's history, particularly in the state of Bengal. Some of India's grain was exported to Ceylon, now Sri Lanka, to meet needs there, even though Ceylon wasn't experiencing the same degree of hardship as India. Australian wheat sailed past to the Mediterranean and the Balkans. Offers of American and Canadian food aid were turned down. India was not permitted to use its own sterling reserves, or even its own ships, to import food. 
and because the British government paid inflated prices in the open market to ensure supplies, grain became unaffordable for ordinary Indians. Churchill announced that the Indians must learn to look after themselves as we have done. There is no reason why all parts of the British Empire should not feel the pinch in the same way as the mother country has done. Still more disgracefully, Churchill told Secretary of State for India, Leopold Amory, I hate Indians. They are a beastly people with a beastly religion. The famine was their own fault, he declared at a war cabinet meeting, for, quote, breeding like rabbits. Three million Bengalis died of starvation. Bonus fact, a 2008 survey of British teenagers found that 23% thought that Churchill was fiction and 58% thought that Sherlock Holmes was fact. Before those numbers depress you too much, remember, these were teenagers they were polling. With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Thing done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. As history's biggest drug kingpin, Pablo Escobar was behind 80% of the world's cocaine traffic. Like Capone, Escobar didn't just want to be rich and famous, he also wanted to be loved by the public. With Escobar being responsible for over 4,000 deaths, countless bombings, kidnappings, and political assassinations, it's hard to believe that anyone in Colombia has any fond memories of him. But the people of a neighborhood that he built, and named after himself, do. In the 1980s, the government ignored the plight of the people in the Moravia neighborhood of Medellin, where 15,000 people were forced to live on a garbage dump that the city had built. Escobar came in and built 1,000 new houses, a soccer field, and a sanitation system. He did this in part because he felt a connection to the poor, and in part because he was trying to win votes in his run for Congress. Regardless of his actual motives, the people in the community never forgot. He spent millions of his ill-gotten booty on more housing for the homeless and destitute, 
constructed 70 community soccer fields, and built a zoo. Speaking of booty, pretty girls are part and parcel to the rock and roll lifestyle. For a number of our favorites, it was literally girls. Fresh off great balls of fire, Jerry Lee Lewis landed in England with a young girl on his arm, his new bride, Myra, the daughter of his bass player slash cousin, who was 13 years old. When a reporter asked who she was, Myra said she was Jerry Lee's wife, because no one had told her to keep it a secret. As if that wasn't enough, 22-year-old Lewis was actually still married to his first wife at the time. The British press ran with this, the public was outraged, and the band was practically run out of the country. Things didn't get better when they returned to the U.S. The scandal never left Lewis, and his brand was done for. Elvis Presley married Priscilla Beaulieu when she was 18, but he began dating her when she was 14, and he was 25. We don't have time to get into all of the rock stars having sexual relations, consensual or otherwise, with underage girls, or we'd be here all day. Looking at you, Jimmy Page, Don Henley, David Lee Roth, Steven Tyler, Mick Jagger, David Bowie, though I do want to single out Ted Nugent for special recognition for adopting the 17-year-old girl he wanted to sleep with to avoid being charged with kidnapping. Father of rock and roll, Chuck Berry, was convicted in 1961 of transporting a minor across state lines for the purpose of sex, a 14-year-old he met in Texas. In the 80s, Berry installed cameras in the bathroom of a restaurant he owned, claiming it was to catch an employee stealing, but he had footage of women and girls on video at his house, along with drugs. Jumping over to the movie biz, Charlie Chaplin also had a penchant for underage girls. When he was 30, he impregnated a 16-year-old actress, and his next relationship after that was with a 15-year-old. In the aftermath of the devastating Japanese earthquake in 2011, the organized crime syndicate, the Yakuza, were among the first responders. Within days, they were dispatching trucks filled with food, water, and blankets to the affected areas. In the first two weeks, they donated relief supplies worth over half a million dollars. Rather than this being a PR stunt like some of our earlier entries, their philanthropy seems to be genuine. According to their Ninkyo code, others should not be left to suffer. We'll just tiptoe around the irony of all the people that they kill in the course of their business. In times of national need, Yakuza gangs follow this code to the letter. After the 1995 Kobe earthquake, they were the first to get supplies to victims. They're also notoriously reticent about publicizing their donations, refusing to talk to the press. Their intentions are so honorable that even crime reporter Atsushi Mizoguchi has praised them, which is saying something considering he's been attacked and stabbed by Yakuza members. Twice. Speaking of high praise, we recently got a five-star review on Apple Podcast from Dan, who says, I was recently introduced to your brain on facts, and I couldn't be more excited about it. As a researcher, writer, and all-around nerd, this show appeals to my very soul. Moxie's voice is mesmerizing and draws listeners into well-researched factoids surrounding our history and daily lives. 
The stories behind the facts keep you hooked to the very end of each episode. Add this one to your feed. You won't regret it. Thanks, Dan. Every review is appreciated. If you'd like to hear your name and opinion read on the show, leave a review on our Facebook page or through Apple Podcasts. Like Abraham Lincoln, President Grant felt certain that blacks and whites would never be able to live together peacefully. His proposed solution was to buy the Dominican Republic, then known as Santo Domingo, and send all four million freed black people in the United States there. He even got legendary anti-slavery Senator Charles Sumner, then the most powerful man in the Senate, to agree to help him with the mass deportation. The Dominican Republic was on board with this idea, though that may have something to do with Dominican President Buenaventura Baez personally being offered $100,000 for the annexation treaty. The treaty didn't go through, of course. As a general, Grant also made a run at banning all Jews from the states of Kentucky, Tennessee, and Mississippi because he blamed them for, of all things, cotton smuggling. Grant's order is the only example of a purely anti-Semitic action taken by the U.S. government, and yet somehow Grant still won the Jewish vote both times he ran for president. If there's one group of people most of us would cross the street to avoid, it's the Hell's Angels. Biker gangs are often in the business of, or at least adjacent to, drugs, murder, and a host of other illegal activities. But they are not without benevolence. In 2014, members of the Hell's Angels waited in line at Walmart for five days in advance of Black Friday in order to make a very special purchase. Once inside, they bought every single child's bicycle in the store, about 200 of them, which they donated to Pavarello House, an organization in California that helps the needy. In addition to that, they also run an annual toy drive. American civil rights leader and prolific author W.E.B. Dubois was one of the best-known spokesmen for African-American rights and co-founded the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People in 1909. That's why it lands so strangely in the brain to learn that he took a five-month-long Nazi-funded trip to Germany in 1936 on the condition that he not criticize their treatment of Jews. When Dubois returned to the United States, he wrote that the German hatred of the Jews, quote, is a reasoned prejudice or an economic fear. Jewish and anti-Nazi organizations were understandably unnerved. Dubois shared many of the Nazis' views on Jews, saying they were an alien presence and foreign element in Germany, claimed Hitler's dictatorship was necessary and that National Socialism made sense, and spoke highly of Hitler's right-hand man, Rudolf Hess. Dubois would spend years backpedaling and defending himself in the press. While the Black Panthers are often portrayed as a gang, their leadership saw the organization as a political party whose goal was getting more African Americans elected to political office. By the early 1970s, FBI counterintelligence efforts, criminal activities, and an internal rift within the group weakened the party as a political force. Despite all of that, the Black Panther Party started a number of popular community social programs, 
including free breakfast programs for school children and free health clinics in 13 historically black communities across the country. The party saw a serious need to nurture black kids in disenfranchised communities, so they spent about two hours each morning cooking breakfast for children in poor neighborhoods before school. Studies came out saying that children who didn't have a good breakfast in the morning were less attentive in school and less inclined to do well and suffered from fatigue, former party member David Lemieux said in a documentary. We just simply took that information and a program was developed to serve breakfast to children. We were showing love for our people. The party served about 20,000 meals a week and it became the most successful of their 35 programs. Another bonus fact, the Black Panther comic book character debuted in Fantastic Four less than a year before the Black Panther Party emerged in 1966. Although their names are of unrelated origin, their histories are intertwined. In a 1972 issue of Fantastic Four, the publisher briefly changed Chala's name to Black Leopard to distance him from the group. The change didn't stick, however, and within a few months, T'Challa was back to being called Black Panther. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. Again, none of the good things we brought up are meant to expunge any sins, and none of the bad things are meant to discredit any legacies. But it's important that we try harder to remember both sides of people. So next time a headline comes across your social network, thus and such person did this thing, good or bad, before you like or share that post, take a second to remember that we're all, at best, a mixed bag. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. Today's episode has been brought to you by the word dump. Dump. history but hate when it's stuffy and boring well look no further and join me katie charlwood your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books as i delve into unsolved historical mysteries murders by gaslight and of course women who have been misrepresented through all time on who did what now the history podcast that's not your history class listen wherever you get your podcasts